6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 8. Well, we started the study with the question, is life really worth living? That seems to be the address that uh, Solomon is addressing in his uh, work on Ecclesiastes and this discourse. And uh, his initial remarks, as we explored in the early chapters, was that life is probably not worth living. And he listed four arguments to support that view. The monotony of life, the vanity of wisdom, the futility of wealth, and the certainty of death. Being a wise man, of course, Solomon then reviewed his arguments in more detail. And this time he brought God into the picture, and that makes quite a difference. He realized that life is not monotonous, but it's filled with challenging situations continually from God, and, uh, and there's, each has its own time and purpose. If you remember in chapter 3, there's a time for, for everything. He realized that life is, um, not only not, is it not monotonous, he learned that wealth could be enjoyed and employed to the glory of God. So he talked about that. And even though man's wisdom can't explain everything, he concluded it was better to follow God's wisdom than to practice man's folly. And uh, and as for the certainty of death, we dwelled on that. There's no way to escape it. But it ought to motivate us to enjoy life now and make the most of the opportunities. So, so having gone through a second review, if you will, in more depth, he's now ready for his conclusion and uh, his and personal application. And he's going to give four pictures of life. In the, in the final two chapters of this book. Life is an adventure, he'll point out, and it's our opportunity to live by faith. And we'll see that in the first half a dozen verses of chapter 11. Life is a gift, and so we are to enjoy it. And that's why some people say that's why we call the present present. It's a gift. <laughs> but uh, And life is a school. We should learn our lessons. And above all, life is a stewardship to fear God. So that's sort of the summary that he does. These four pictures, if you will, parallel the four arguments that he made earlier. In other words, life is not monotonous. It is rather an adventure of faith. And uh, it's anything but predictable. Life is not predictable. And yes, death certain, but life is a gift from God, and he wants us to enjoy it. And there are questions that we can't answer, but we shouldn't despair. He teaches us his truth as we advance through the school of life, if you call it that. And uh, he'll give us wisdom to make sensible decisions. And finally, as far as wealth is concerned, life is a stewardship from God. And one day he's going to call us to account, and that brings us right into uh, chapter 11. Uh, remember, I throw the first verse up in Hebrew to remind us this is a translation, and there are some translational uh, enigmas as we go. But basically his theme through here is that vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does profit a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Notice the emphasis. It's man's knowledge and it's limited to under the sun. That is the earth, not heaven and the rest. That's in his first cut. And that's also the way he concludes. Same similar verses. The word from just by way of review to get us warmed up here. The Hebrew word for this book is koheleth, which really means the assembler, the one that calls an assembly or the preacher. 
And it's when it's translated into Greek, we have the word ecclesia for the assembly. And it's from the Latinization of the Greek that we get the word uh, Ecclesiastes, which is our name. And of course, it's Solomon's Sermon on Natural Man's Quest for Good. What most people miss, unless they study it carefully, he reaches beyond man's knowledge and puts God in the picture before he's through. And it's a cumulative treatise. It's very organized. And, that's, and you need to read the whole thing to get his perspective, not just extract a verse. And the conclusion, all is vanity, is with the constraints, that it's man's knowledge and it's limited to under the sun. And don't assume, like so many do, it's amazing how many commentators take for granted that uh, Solomon is uh, pessimistic. Not at all. He's just bravely honest. And uh, he does put it in perspective by looking beyond the ironies of life and toward the divine control and future restitutions. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. His main point is going to be that life's an adventure. And I have to admit that uh, I was I was a nerd when I was in high school. I was a very high-tech kind of guy. And I was heading, my path was, I always excelled in math and science kinds of things, and I was going to head for a Ph.D. double at Stanford. I was all set up to do that when I got the Naval Academy appointment. And uh, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because it... It broadened me. I would have been very narrow, very very specialized had I been left to my own devices. And, of course, the academy experience gave me an appetite for adventure that I've never lost. The rest of my life has been incredibly adventurous for lots of reasons. So I, I took my commission in the Air Force. I, although after flight training, I uh, was in the middle of, middle of the missile gap, ended up as branch chief of Department of Guided Missiles. The big deal in, in the classified community in those days were reconnaissance satellites. So when I got out of the service, I was... In, in that game for a while, and uh, I was with some strategic think tanks right in the middle of all of those great crazy days. And uh, then when I got out of the uh, defense establishment, I was right in the middle of the merger mania of the 70s and so on, uh, the computer networks of uh, the 60s, the uh, personal computer. I was Somehow, uh, the Lord has just... Uh, Give me an incredible adventure. And, and, and of course, now, the last 10 years, the greatest adventure of all. And that's uh, in the middle of God's climax for mankind. It's really, we're living in the most exciting times in human history. But so I can relate to Solomon's point that he's really making, is that life is an adventure. And he, in chapter 11, he's going to give us some very profound advice. Verse 1 of chapter 11, Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. To you and I, that doesn't make a lot of sense, you see. Uh, it's really cast their bread upon the face of the waters, and it might be paraphrased, send out your grain in ships. It's not obvious from the English translation. Um, Solomon himself, of course, was involved in all kinds of trade. He really grew the empire on a, on a commercial basis. So it was natural for him to use some examples here. Uh, he's going to talk both about shipments and also about farmers from the point of view of risk management. If you were shipping ships in those days, it would be months before they uh, would return uh, with their payment for their cargo and so forth. Uh, and, they, and when they did, of course, the merchant who took those risks would be rewarded. But a great deal of faith was required because uh, neither the merchant or a farmer, for that matter, in his calling, could control the circumstances. The ships might hit a reef, meet a storm, uh, be attacked by pirates or what have you, and the cargo lost. And for a farmer, there's bad weather, blight, insects, whatever, can just, and his labor can be in vain too. So both the examples he's using, and especially in those days, were fraught with risk. You know, it didn't take him long to realize that you split your cargo on several ships 
And, and that led to the whole concept of insurance downstream. So you could spread your risk among uh, many merchants or many situations. So that's all later. He's really uh, very oriented to the, the uh, fact that whether you're a farmer or a merchant, you are facing risk. You can't wait to do anything when there's no risk or you're not going to get anything done. And that's going to be the flavor of what he's doing here. And he's going to apply that to life. Life is full of risks. And that's where faith comes in. Or some people say, you know, a turtle doesn't get anywhere until he sticks his neck out. And you also know that the most important things in life don't happen unless you uh, find someone that's willing to crawl out on a limb and take a risk to make it happen. Remember Jonathan the armor bearer in First Samuel. There's the interesting thing where they got the whole Philistine army and they're all upset. And one night after dinner, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, you know, we don't know that the Lord might not deliver the Philistines to us tonight. The arbor says, hey, I'm with you, whatever you want to do. So the two of them climb the cliff, and they put up a fleece. We're going to reveal ourselves to the sentries, and if they come at us, we know that we run. But if they tell us to come up there, we know God has delivered them to our hands. They use it as sort of a sign, which they did. And they said, come on up. So they went up there, and they slaughtered, the two of them slaughtered 20 guys in the, in the confines of this crevice and so forth. And that caused the whole Philistine army to panic. As they knew something was up, they thought they were getting attacked. And there's such a commotion. Even Saul, back at the main camp, hears all this. And, of course, they go after it, and it's a big victory. And they, they take muster and find the only people gone. The only people that were involved were Jonathan and his armor bearer. But the point is, here's a guy that just had the guts to see what see if God wouldn't bless what they're going to do. But in this area of risk management, we get to verse 2. It's one of the most important verses in, in the book from a practical point of view for you and I. Here's the wisest man who was king, giving us some advice. He says, Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. Solomon's strategy, his advice, is to diversify. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, is really what he's saying here. This whole area of diligence and, and prudence in handling is a very, very key issue. Paul, it's shifting to the New Testament, Paul says, if any provide not for his own, and especially those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Wow, that is tough language on the part of Paul. If you're not diligent as a head of household, providing for your own, especially those of your family, you're worse than an infidel. Thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. See, we don't know is a very key phrase. It's going to occur here in not only verse 2, but verse 5 and 6 as we get into this chapter. Man can't help but be ignorant of the future. But he still must not allow that ignorance to make him so fearful he doesn't take any action. And one way you hedge your bet about the uncertainties of life in general is to spread your risk. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. My, my uh, professional technical training is uh, in the information sciences and specifically in decision theory. And one of the things you discover as you get into that whole area is a mixed strategy always turns out to be best. If any of you get a, get, you stumble on a book called The Complete Strategist by J.D. Williams of the Rand Corporation. It's in most bookstores, or it was at one time. Very colorful, very humorous, but very, very provocative insight in the whole area of game theory and decision theory and so forth. But one of the things you'll discover as you get into the careful study of that area is mixed strategies are best. And that leads us to an area that is we would call asset allocation or diversification. We've had, uh, we, we participate each year in uh, some uh, international conferences 
in which this is almost always included as an area of a Christian conference. What do we mean by diversification? What do you mean by asset allocation? Solomon says seven or eight things. Many of us says, gee, I invest in seven or eight different stocks. No, you haven't, you haven't diversified because they're all stocks. You see, if you go through this equities or stocks, like the stock market, is one place you can invest. There's also bonds. Most people, gee, I put half my money in stocks and half in bonds because they're, you know, corporate debts in effect. They have a fixed rate of return. Okay, that's the beginning. You've got two, not seven yet. There are government securities, typically lower rate of return, but obviously lower risk. And not necessarily domestic, it can be foreign governments, by the way. Real estate. Uh, it's Most people regard real, that's why they call it real estate, is that it's very secure. You, you own the land. Well, yes, but it lacks liquidity. It has, it has a major deficiency of sorts, and that is that it's very hard to convert to cash if you need to. And so it can be secure in one sense, it can be very illiquid in the other. So, and there's also, but some people invest in notes receivable, mortgages, trustees, and so forth. Higher rate of return, but, uh, more, more risk. And, uh, some people also include in their profile tangibles. Some people invest in some gold or silver, or what have you. And, uh, there are also derivatives, options and futures and contracts that tend to, to uh, spread risk or can actually be used as insurance policies in a sense against risk. And, of course, everybody has some speculative area of their own special knowledge. Some people collect coins, numismatics, some antiques, and there's a whole host of these. But the main point, I guess, that the professionals will emphasize, in fact, many of them will quote Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 2, to defend this approach, and that is seven or eight things. The whole question really becomes, as you analyze the any given time, is what percent to do in what areas. But the main idea is to put something in each of, say, seven or eight different areas, not just seven or eight different stocks, because seven or eight stocks still, a rising tide raises all boats and vice versa. So that's why most professionals will put some percentage into equities, some percentage into bonds. At times, if things are looking very prosperous, they'll favor the equities, where you can really participate in the growth. At times that they're more uncertain, they may shift to bonds. And within each of these, there's another issue here, within each of these... Each has its own spectrum of characteristics. One is the risk-reward ratios. Whether you talk about equities or bonds, you typically will have dividends or yields that are proportionate to the risk. Very solid, secure things will yield fairly modest amounts. Things that are more speculative, because they are more speculative, have to give a better rate of return. Their rate of return should be commensurate with the kind of risk involved. And uh, so risk-reward ratios is a very important area. Even for people say, gee, bonds, those are corporate debts. Yes, but bonds are rated. Uh, Moody's will rate bonds by how solid the company is, how likely is it to honor its debts. Often uh, uh, debentures and so forth will go into arrears or, or for a while or what have you. There's their issues. So um, even though they offer a fixed rate of return, there are risks associated with them. And understanding the risks is essential if you're going to understand the reward profile. Government securities are another example. Less return, but generally regarded as more solid, more secure, especially U.S. government securities. Notes receivable. Gee, those are guaranteed, uh, you know, returns. No, it depends how good the creditor is to uh, be able to pay. Many people invest in those things only to find out they got foreclosure problems and so forth. So you need to understand what you're getting into. And that's one reason so many people will go to tangibles and other and other kinds of things. Derivatives are considered very speculative, but the convert of that is you can use them to spread your risks and so forth. Uh, there's the issue of safety. All these things have different degrees of safety. 
and you're always going to be trading off the degree of safety. You see, the safest thing, I could have gold and hide it in my own backyard or something. Uh, yes, but it won't be productive, it won't grow, it won't earn, and so forth. So you've got some issues to, to think through. But the other thing many people overlook is liquidity. And uh, in the kind of world that we live in, liquidity is a major, major topic to deal with. Um, in a military sense, whenever you're facing uncertainty, your strategy is always for mobility. A good example is the Maginot Line in France that was supposed to protect them against Germany, but it was rigid and was no match for the panzers that went through the forest they weren't supposed to be able to go through and did go through, and, and they turned, <laughs> they were useless. In other words, that's used as a classic example of, of a fortress mentality that lacks mo mobility. Well, the same thing's true in our financial affairs, is that uh, one of the things that uh, we're facing, I think especially in, in recent times, is incredible uncertainties in the market. Unless you're very professional and have very good source of information, you're facing great uncertainties. And so your strategy should always include a concept of liquidity. How fast can you convert whatever you're into into cash? That's one of the problems with real estate as an investment. It tends to be a liquid. When you need to sell, it takes time. It's, 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 it's uncertain. The advantage of equities, especially traded on the major exchanges, in a few minutes you can be out of them into cash is a key thing. Anyway, the main point Solomon is suggesting is that you diversify because you can't predict the future with an adequate confidence to be secure. One of the ways you deal with the unpredictability of markets or commercial or, or life itself is to hedge your bet. Uh, don't, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't hang all your hopes on one particular project. We published some years ago some briefing packages, and, and they're still equid around, that uh, called the Vortex Strategy. You know, in Proverbs 27.12, here's Solomon again, a prudent man sees the evil coming and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished. In other words, saying that the, the sharp guys recognize what's on the horizon and make preparations. And this is again, as we, I knew I had this slide in here somewhere. Here's, here's, here's the Paul's thing. Who argues that prudence and diligence is a solemn obligation for the believer. He says in 1 Timothy 5.8, he advises his young protege, Timothy, he says, but if any provide not for his own, especially those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. That's wild language for Paul. So what, one of the things we've tried to do is put together what I call, for lack of a better term, the vortex strategy. What do you do when you have a, a business or economic horizon that is extremely uncertain and there are storm clouds on the horizon? And I'm, I'll give you just a short summary version of it so you get a flavor of it. See, when the weather is uh, fair and calm, you know, that's a good time to clear the decks and, and uh, reduce excess baggage repair any deficiencies, re-examine and repair our spiritual armor, and uh, get better prepared in every way, spiritually, financially, physically, any other way. So what, what am I suggesting financially? Well, the first thing, the suggestion is for all of us, is to lower our cost of living. Most of us live on the edge. Intrinsically, it's human nature. But the smart guys lower the cost of living. You say, well, gee, I could increase my income. Well, I'm, you know, yeah, you can. You can always hope you will. But one of the, what you have control of is your, your expense base. And one of the suggestions is if you lower your cost, that will give you a delta. That will give you a discretionary uh, economics to do, to do with something. If you don't have that, you're, you're bound. You're, you're a slave to the situation. And by the way, as you attract this subject, lowering the cost of living, I encourage you, to make a budget, not of your dollars, of your time. 
You can always get more dollars, but you can't get more time. In other words, your time constraints are the crucial ones. And as you analyze where you really spend your time, um, that will should impact, okay, the kind of capital investments you make. All, all, many of us make investments in things that we don't really have time to enjoy. That's a poor investment. Uh, any pilot will tell you there's nothing more expensive than a plane that stays in the hangar or a boat that stays at the dock or whatever. So one of the things you do is it, it, analyze carefully where you can really spend your time and use that insight to lower your cost of living. Why are you going to do that? To step two, use that delta to get out of debt, personal debt. Debt is a presumption on the future, and we don't know the future. So it's, so I'm going to suggest that debt, personal debt, is contrary to God's plan for your life. And with the incremental cash that you can generate from step one, use that to, I'm talking about unsecured personal debt, credit cards, whatever. I'm not talking about collateralized notes on productive assets. That's a form of financing. It's not debt in the sense I'm using here. If you've financed a productive asset, that's a whole different issue. The, the asset will pay off the loan. But I'm talking about unsecured personal debt. So that's, that's step two. Get out of personal debt. Okay, now if you've done that, you've earned the right to get to step three. Step three is to guard your liquidity. Be, be cautious when you find investments that look like they have an extremely attractive return because that, with that attractive return probably comes some serious risk. So evaluate that carefully, but guard your liquidity. Be able, keep your, in other words, keep your flexibility because we don't know what's coming. There are all kinds of tensions on the horizon. The one thing, if you analyze the strategic horizon, whether it's from a secular point of view or a prophetic point of view, there's no question about the next number of months, number of years, are going to be more turbulent than most people realize. So one of the ways you prepare for that is to guard your liquidity. And that requires diligence. Make sure you don't get into excessive commitments that cloud your liquidity. And that leads to the most important thing of all, and that's learn the supernatural basis for stewardship. Learn the supernatural basis for stewardship. I spent most of my executive career, I had a 30-year career of, as a director of public companies, some dozen of them. I've been chairman and CEO of six different publicly traded companies. I have a, a what would be regarded as a relatively sophisticated financial background. And, and uh, I have to tell you, almost everything I've learned in financial management is upside down compared to what God tells you to do. One of the things you want to do, no matter how financially sophisticated you are, if that's fine, set it aside, find out God's plan for uh, financing. You'll discover his uses and approach to money is just the opposite of what most of us do. Uh, in fact, uh, what are the purposes for money? Well, there's four at least. God's provision, his direction for our lives, his form of fellowship, and the way he demonstrates himself. And what I mean by that? Well, his provision. I'm taking some of this from 1 Kings 17 and other places. God uses our finances, first of all, to establish daily dependence on him. The dream of every financial guy is to be financially independent. Well, God doesn't want you independent. He wants you dependent on Him. God uses our finances to deepen our love for Him. There's nothing more exciting than to watch Him walk with us moment by moment, hand by hand. And that should, in fact, develop a spirit of gratefulness in us. It should teach us to live within our means. Most of us are always stre stretching that point. And to help us enjoy our possessions. God wants you to enjoy your possessions, but He wants it from a position of satisfaction, not a point, not from a point of view of uh, coveting or ingratitude. Okay, second thing, God uses our finances and our financial situation to give us direction, to build our faith and vision, to determine who really is the Lord of our life. 
and to protect us from harmful items. Often there's something that he denies you because he knows it fundamentally it'd be harmful. <laughs> Every time that you buy a lottery ticket and don't win, that's God protecting you from something that would probably harm you. You may not see it that way, but you can count on it. And it teaches patience. How often we pray, gee, God, I need patience and I need it right now. You never play for patience because tribulation makes patience, but that won't get into that here. Uh, and of course, the other reason he, he, he wants us to concentrate on what the true riches are. The true riches are the riches that you can really enjoy. And God also uses it for fellowship. He desires to use our finances to unite Christians. One of the things you can do with your resources that you have is to use it to unite Christians, to demonstrate the mark of a Christian, and uh, to initiate spontaneous thanksgiving. Isn't it wonderful to have a surplus so that when you see a need, a spontaneous need, you can help that person right then. That's exciting. There's nothing more fun than that. And to multiply the potential for giving. It's one of the reasons we invest and hope to multiply our assets is to be able to do more for the kingdom. And he uses it to demonstrate in our lives God's power, to cause Christians to trust him, to mock the false gods of our age, to purify our lives and motives, and to bring non-Christians to salvation. So that's just a quick summary of a more in-depth study, and of course to glorify God. Which leads, of course, to another subject, the tithe. Gee, that's an Old Testament thing. No, it's a New Testament thing too. Why tithe? Well, for one thing, it acknowledges the Creator's rights. You realize that, see, a tenth of everything is His. Till you give a tenth, you've just, you haven't given, you've just given back His own. You haven't done that yet. You haven't given an offering until you exceed the tenth. That's the concept. And that, that precedes the law. That precedes Exodus 20 and so forth. That's, uh, Abraham gave tithes. That's long before Moses. It's the antidote for greed and covetousness. Tithing is an antidote for greed and covetousness. And boy, that's a that's that's one of its great blessings. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.